episode of our humongously popular podcast. My name is Kari, or Kari, depending on your cultural and geographic flavor. And uh, my bureaucracy-loving Finnish correspondent, he's crafty as ever and villainous as Henrik. Hello. Yes, nice to be here once again. How are you? I'm pretty okay at the moment. Don't, don't know what is the what is my position and well-being at the end of this episode, seeing the amount of beer I have at the table at the moment, but for the moment I'm doing good. Did you manage to get Bob's and Linda's favorite drink, Budweiser? I actually managed to find it. I mean, it was surprisingly <laughs> hard. Yeah. Hard find. Especially seeing how it's pretty well-known brand and it, it is not, or it is pretty well-known even in Finland. It's not any specialty beer in Finland, but I still have to go like two or three stores before I found myself some Budweiser. I had to go to a special alcohol store here. It was there, but it's definitely not widely available. Uh, it says that it's a Czech important lager. I have no knowledge of beers whatsoever, so excuse my non-knowledge. Yeah, beer is also a tricky kind of a refreshner in the sense that even though that the brand can come from basically anywhere from the world, it can be kind of a brewed everywhere in the world. That is correct, sir. You probably didn't know that in Poland we have some amazing benefits, I have to say. I just realized this like a month ago. So if I want to go to the local cinema called Cinema City... They have this special offer, or they have this now everywhere, like permanently, it seems. Uh, a 55 slot per month for a card. That is about, let's say, 12 euros. 12 euros per month, and you can watch movies in unlimited quantity every month, including premieres. And I understand including also like a pre-pre-screenings of a movie. So... <laughs> <laughs> I am completely speechless. You, you, do you mean like you still have to buy that ticket and on top of that you have to own the card or do you just need the card? It is really just a 55 slot or 12 euros per month, except if you go to 3D showings, then you need to pay a little bit more, maybe like, a, what was it, like a one euro on top of that or something like that. So, okay, well. Yeah, holy shit, you know. Yeah. That 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 is quite cheap because in Finland you have to pay what what could I say? 65 slots just to see one film. That that's just one time at the movies without popcorn, without a soda. Just a movie ticket is what would it be like? I don't know. With with your exchange rate, maybe 65 slots, maybe even more. Yeah. Like go, going to Movie tickets are expensive as shit in Finland. Ah, uh, tell me about it. Tell me about it. That yeah. is robbery. It, it, yeah, it is. You can really feel that in Finland, 
we basically have just one major monopoly of mm-hmm. movie movie theater chain. And Once again, yeah. like in the supermarket field. Yeah. Well, a few few of the big companies, and that's it. Are you familiar with Poland? Because you or you were just pulling that exchange course by listening to me. I was pulling the exchange course simply by listening to you. Right. I have been in Poland once for like three hours mm. when we were border crossing and we had a small pit stop at Poland. But mo- mostly I know Poland only from, you know, video games and literature. Hmm. Oh yeah, the, the, the Witcher, right? Yeah, precisely. Right. Witcher and CD Projekt Red, both of which I'm huge fan of. Like, I, I really think that when it, when it comes to, you know, game industry, CD Projekt, Projekt Red and in that sense, Poland has been kind of one of the best things that has happened to video game industry in years. This day's podcast is powered by Halloween. I have to say this is probably the 666th time that I've seen it. How about you, mister? Not nearly as many times. I would say that little over ten times. I'm seriously lagging on my times of seeing Halloween. I understand <clears throat> we have been both pretty pretty hard core or pretty big fans of this series, uh, at least in one point. You were reviewing these movies and you had, yeah, you know this series inside and out, I guess. Yeah, uh, I don't Like, it's really bad to say about your own work, how, how well you you actually know anything about anything, but at least I've seen the entire series. And like we already discussed, even way back then, I had some really strong opinions about some entries on this series. Yeah, there's a lot to say about this series. It starts out strong and then winds up in the shithouse for the most of it. There are some... Nice moments. Yeah. There are some redeeming qualities in every movie. So that's nothing new. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, I, I don't know about every movie. <laughs> At first, I have to come out and confess that it's been ages since I've seen some of the entries on this series. Some of them I have only seen once. The worst ones I've only watched once. Those times have been years ago, so uh, in that case, I don't know how I will react seeing when I now have to watch them again on this later date. This is a really important film to me. When I was a little kid, I saw Halloween the first time. It wasn't my first Halloween that I saw. That uh, title belongs to Halloween 2. It scared the living daylights out of me. I was having nightmares for months after that. I couldn't sleep. <laughs> I think I was around nine or ten or something to that effect. That's quite surprising because I have exact same experience with the franchise. Oh. The, uh, yeah, Not notwithstanding with being scared shitless by the movie and not being able to sleep for weeks after seeing it. I, I had not that problem after seeing Halloween 2. But otherwise than that, I, w- I was pretty much at the same age as you were when I first exposed myself to the ha- Halloween franchise. And for me too, Halloween 2 was the 
movie that was my entry point into this series. Very interesting. So we may uh, share some love towards this sequel. Uh, yeah, I at least definitely do have a soft spot for the sequel. Yeah. And yeah, and seeing how much kind of a hate the sequel has gathered mm. throughout the years from from the fans of the of this first film of the series, I, I never have been able to grasp, you know, where where all that hostility comes from. Let's try to unpack all of that in the next episode. I saw Halloween one a little bit later, probably could have been two, three years later even, but I was totally scared. What I was expecting to see that night with all the lights off and nobody at the house, perfect uh, situation. I expected to see the long black Dean Gundy corridors and to be scared shitless of Michael and his needles. But no, that was Halloween too. I didn't realize that at that point. So now it was the Halloween one, what happened before that. Uh, still the same effect, basically. I was at the edge of my seat. I've seen this movie about, okay, let's uh, pick a serious number. Let's see. I've seen it probably, I've seen it probably, f- I would say 40-ish times if I had to say something. Probably 40, because I have also been organizing these uh, horror movie events called Kauhuen Yö or Night of the Horrors or Night of the Horror. Uh, I haven't done it in eight years, but it's coming back this year. So everybody is, uh, who is a friend of mine and <laughs> has connections to me can probably go and visit it. Yeah, that is one way to market our podcast, like. <laughs> get, get, get really fascinated listeners to our podcast. <laughs> Just, just promise them that they they can they might get entry into this event. You might if you're super lucky. Yeah, yeah. If if you su- if you're a super fan of the podcast, you may get an invite. And uh, this this movie and the second one, to, I think you were there as well on that year. It was either 2009 or 2010. I knew you were there in the party in Lohja, Finland, on one of those. Uh, the point is. Uh, the one of the movies that I had arranged for that day was like a combination of Halloween one and two, and I had been clever with the naming. What what was it again? All of the night he came home. That was the title. And only thing that I had changed there was that I had connected the ending of Halloween one with the starting point of Halloween two, and then kind of cleverly edited away the Halloween two opening titles to make it seem like a more whole thing together but uh, on a hindsight i maybe shouldn't have touched it so much i i don't, I don't know i mean uh, as an idea it sounds really great yeah i think i'm gonna take a certain approach here i'm gonna roll this film and i'm gonna get myself into a certain zone kind of go through the moments uh, scene by scene a little bit Okay, so the movie starts with the iconic pumpkin, as everybody knows, and the orange titles. In fact, if you read the script, uh, the text was in dark red letters. They actually made a lot of adjustments between the script and what they actually shot. Kind of all these little things, there was a lot of them. And this is the introduction of Jamie Lee Curtis. This is her 
first movie, at least uh, first any kind of serious movie. There's uh, Donald Pleasance starring this, giving kind of a star power to this uh, minuscule budget movie. They only had $325,000 worth of money to make this movie. And in fact, it was first $300,000, but they had to get Pleasance, so he's... Paycheck was 25,000, so that's why it's 325k. We start with the iconic scene where little Michael comes to kill his sister, Judith. What are your thoughts on that while I change my position? Mm, I, I think that it's one of the best openings to a horror movie pretty much ever. Like, like those opening minutes of Halloween... The original Halloween are some of the cleverest kind of uh, both filmmaking and also as a, uh, I can't say plot twist, but as a setup that there has been, I would say, in horror movie history. Yeah, it's amazing how much they can do with such a small sum of money. And this is one of the first movies that so prominently features the Panaglide, which is uh, it's uh, Panavision's version of the Steadicam. So they used the Panaglide. And a funny thing uh, is that they had pretty small rolls of film to uh, complete a certain scene. So they were forced to cut a little bit here and there. One of the cuts was necessary for another reason, because there's the mask going over Michael's face. They had very little amount of lights during this scene or during this whole production, which meant that, well, also because the way that this scene is filmed, they had to do some interesting tricks. So when Michael is approaching the house, during this whole shoot, continuous shoot for about two minutes or so, or however long that is, they need to rearrange the lighting in the house during when the Panaglide is moving and Ray Stella is operating the camera around the house. And they managed to do it seamlessly. You don't see anything like light switching during the scene. But uh, what I hear is what is on the original audio is that there's like a frantic operation going on. Lots of clinging and clanging and people changing the lights. And this um, scene in the downstairs at the moment when Michael is about to go upstairs... And the motion picture history's quickest sex scene is over. And then Michael goes up the stairs and stabs his sister. After which he goes out of the house and the dad asks Michael, like, what did you do? And there is this moment where they just freeze on the, on the screen. The actors don't do anything. Like, of course, in a real life scenario... It would be like they would be frantically shaking Michael, like, what have you done? And somebody would be running to Judith, like, oh, are you okay, Judith? I love you. But what they are doing here is a tableau that you would see in a theater play. So they freeze for this reason, to give this kind of tableau effect. Every Everything freezes, and then you move on to the next scene. Yeah. And uh, something I always have found funny that the parents coming home and seeing Michael 
right after the murder scene is the look on the mom's face and the posture the mom takes because <laughs> because she looks like she looks bored and she she has this kind of a pissed off face like oh yeah yeah it had to be tonight of all nights <laughs> Like she, she, she has this coat which has pockets, and she, she just puts her hands in those coat pockets, True. and he's just, just, you know, standing there, like, you know, yeah, you couldn't just pick any other night to stab your sister, you little brat. <laughs> I, 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 I think that that is that is the one aspect that most well kind of uh, pictures there entire terror and a horrible situation where the parents find themselves. Yeah, and also I'm always a little bit perplexed about the look that Michael gives here. He looks a little bit like surprised, like confused. Oh, what did I yeah, do? Yeah, yeah, kind of like he has just woken up. <laughs> yeah, where where am I? Yeah. And, and another thing. Now since we are picking holes at the opening of the movie, <laughs> you know, also something, this is something that, you know, stuck into my eye only after, like, you know, on the 10th viewing of this movie. But, you you know, when when Michael, when, when the film is, or the opening shots that are seen through Michael's eyes, that long tracking shot through the house, to the kitchen, taking a knife, going to the living, uh, the dining room, and from there the hallway. The height is way actually taller than what Michael can be at that moment because Michael is six year old child. Like it, it, it's on that moment, you know, it's from the height perspective of a grown adult. The whole pattern tracking shot. Yes, I agree, but I never really paid attention to it. I never really took notice of that for some reason. Also, the hand that goes to the drawer to get the butcher knife. The hand is Deborah Hills, one of the screenwriters. Um, at that time, she was uh, the girlfriend of John Carpenter. So they did this one together. Yeah, yeah. So jo- John gave her, promised her a part in the movie. You know, since you are my girlfriend, you can, of course, you can come into the into my <laughs> film, uh, and then. I, I can just picture this conversation when John Carpenter promises her, his girlfriend, you know, a role in the film. And Deborah here is all excited about being in a horror movie. And they, they just turns out that all we need is you sticking your hand on the kitchen drawer and getting a knife. Yeah, poor Deborah. She seems yeah. like a really cute person, like a very somebody I would really like to go talk to. Like really, I suppose, motherly a really nice person, I can tell. Yeah, she she has a good grip on, you know, the handle of a kitchen knife. <laughs> she also plays Michael Myers for a short period when there's the long shot from the Doyle house up to the Wallace house when Michael is standing with the blue light facing the Wallace house. We'll get to that later. So the tableau ends and we get to the Smiths Grove, Illinois rainy sequence where Donald Pleasance and, oh, I'm saying Donald Pleasance all the time, but Sam Loomis and Marion Chambers are approaching Smith's Grove Sanitarium. There are a few differences in the screenplay, again, in how they are talking out here. 
For example, Marion Chambers actually gets a little bit annoyed that Donald Pleasant's response I see when Marion Chambers says that she has only been in minimum security events. And this was supposed to be, I guess, like a Loomis's moment where he's like, okay, uh, I see, you're not really fit for this, go home. But they don't have this in the movie. Marion Chambers responded something like, uh, yeah, so what's the big deal? Yeah, I mean, it's it's only a, an asylum that hoses deranged killers. So you, you don't need much, much experience security-wise working on an environment like that. So yeah, in the Blu-ray world, we can definitely see now super clearly when Michael is swinging his hand against the window to break it, we can see that he has a wrench in his hand. But I never thought that was like a big problem. I always kind of thought that, may, okay, maybe it's part of the plot. He has a wrench in his hand to break the window. Alrighty. Yeah. Uh, yeah, please, you know, go more details. How, how on earth is that a problem? Yeah, I don't know. I suppose he was kind of supposed to be more supernatural here, just swinging his bare hand into, into the window. But as yeah, far because... As- yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, you know, uh, in excitement for cutting you out, mm. but because that is kind of have been always or in many theories or many analyses, considering especially that attack scene and this movie, it has been brought up repeatedly as a testament for Michael's supernatural element in the movie that he just uses his bare hand to break the car window. Hmm. Like in many analyses, that has been something that has been repeatedly, you know, stated over that he uses his bare hand. And that's one of the things that makes him kind of a supernatural being in the film. We can get to that conversation. That's going to take a little while. But I believe that he's not supernatural in this film. And this is not the intention of John Carpenter. He, I... Yeah. He, has, he has gone on record to say that, yeah, okay, he, he is a man, but he has this supernatural flavor to him. You are not quite sure if, if he is supernatural or if he's just a guy who just happens to be pretty good at hiding at the right moment here and there. Yeah. There is this there, not there quality about him. And that's what makes this really spooky. It, it's something that could happen to anyone on, on any neighbor, neighborhood, on any street. And there's nothing supernatural, really. Like, everything that happens to Michael in this movie, I fail to find the actual supernatural part. Of course, everything is convenient because it's a film. But it's totally something that could happen. It could I, happen. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm on a different side of that argument. Okay. But like... I, I have to state it already at this point. Once we get into the in the point of conversation we, we, where we go through, you know, all these synopses about Michael being a supernatural being, I I'm kind of a, in a in a field where I see Halloween as a story of a transformation in Michael's part. I, I am with the boogeyman kind of a crowd of Halloween fans. But I have a, a slightly different take on the Pokemon aspect of this film. Yeah, yeah, we'll get to that for sure. 
So yeah, anyway, we get to Haddon Field and we get these dreamy like sequences where the camera just follows the characters, Jamie Lee Curtis and her friends. I suppose these are the kind of scenes that would be considered boring by the new millennia audiences. But for me, it's it has a really meditative quality and this is one of the great things about the movie. It's not in a hurry to go anywhere. It's kind of building the feeling of this uh, realistic atmosphere. It's like uh, just a neighbor girl who is walking down the street and then these spooky things start to happen. There is one thing when it comes to that, especially on this first film of the franchise, that there is slow paceness in this film that you could no longer do in basically any major horror film today. Like today, Halloween is is a uh, kind of a scene as a classic, and it's seen as a testament of how to make a horror film. But there is also the fact that, you know, Halloween was product of its time. When Halloween came out, it was okay to make this kind of this slow burn horror where mostly nothing happens in the, I, I could say for the first, well, not the, not completely for first 45 minutes, because there is a bunch of stuff that happens very early in the movie. But, you know, this slow building of the situation that is in the core of, you know, the first Halloween, like it, it was something that you could do back then and be okay with it. And it, and in Halloween's case, you know, that earned it its scout status and a status as a horror masterpiece. But if you would try to mimic that pacing in a horror movie today, everyone would butcher that film as too boring and too slow. Yeah, I think that's the case for most audiences. But I think they still make movies a little bit in the vein of Halloween. Well, they, they do movies in the vein of Halloween in the indie sphere of filmmaking. Yes. But in there we are talking about indies and they are, not to say anything bad about indie filmmaking or those films, because there is some really great films done today that kind of are taking notes from Halloween. But I just don't see any of them reaching the level of appreciation that John Carpenter's Halloween has. Like they are always, in my opinion, doomed to stay as, as in films and as these cult favorites. Well, Halloween is an indie film itself, small production, not, not much exposure. Although later, of course, because it started to garner it by word of mouth, and some favorable reviews. There is something about indie movies in general because they are, they have to work within the confines of their minuscule budgets. And this always seems to bring something good about the human quality. People start to find ways in places where there is no way, or it seems to be kind of hard to make things happen. Such is the case with Halloween. They were able to do, uh, I think, most of what they were aiming to do, or all. Also, indie films have generally more real realistic atmosphere about them. Again, because they are not 
able to make everything beautiful and shiny and perfect in editing and costumes and every single aspect of the movie, like color correction, which is, by the way, ruining most of the new movies for me because everything looks too perfect. It has nothing to do with the real world anymore. How am I supposed to be scared? That's the one thing I'm scared of about the new Halloween. That's my problem with, with most of the modern horror movies. They don't feel natural. They are not scary because of this. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of uh, divided on that. Well, when it comes to the new Halloween, at this point I finally did it and I... In preparation for this episode, I actually went on and finally saw the trailer for the new Halloween. What did you think? Um, <clears throat> <laughs> okay. Uh, like you know, I I thought it was okay. I I thought there are I thought there are signs of it kind of a going on the right right direction, mm. especially. You know, it continuing on being more brutal, which is my take on the trailer. That it's it's more violent and more brutal, which I'm completely okay with. At the same time, I I catched on the fact that they are throwing out pretty much all the sequels. Yes. I mean, you know, it, it, this is just based on... I haven't read anything about the, you know, about the upcoming Halloween film. But basing on few lines on that trailer, I would throw in a guess that they are actually forgetting every sequel the franchise has. Correct. And this is going to be a soft reboot from, you know, Halloween 1. Correct. Or if you want to quote Dimension films, they were actually working on a different kind of sequel when they were. Dimension was talking about recalibration, <laughs> which was an interesting term. And I think uh, this is a sort of a recalibration in a way. Where, or there's another word for this. It's actually a requel, right? Uh, it's uh, forgetting all the sequels that happened after Halloween 1978. And it's continuing from that moment onwards, 40 years later. And uh, this also means that Michael and Laurie are not related in any way. And there. I see some problems hanging really? ahead. I see but, a gold mine there, uh, because that was always the problem, the whole, the whole family concept for, for me. It was like too much of a "Look, I'm your father" all over again. It just, it just takes the mystique a little bit away from him when you give a motive for Michael Myers. It also, yeah, it also takes mystique out of Michael Myers if you forget every sequel in the franchise that has happened since the original Halloween. Well, it depends. We all already have so many different timelines. It's like a choose-your-own-adventure thing now, where you can watch Halloween and you consider the end of original Halloween the ending for the whole series, okay? Or you can take Halloween and Halloween 2, and it ends when... Michael Myers burns in the fire in the hospital, okay? Or then you can take Halloween, Halloween 2 and Halloween H2O, where the head is cut off. Or you can take Halloween, Halloween 2, Halloween H2O and Halloween Resurrection, where he wasn't actually killed. Or you can, you know, okay, you can take even Halloween 1978 and continue with Rob Zombie's 2009 Halloween 2, whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, but, but you know... 
humor me and answer me on this one. Okay. If you follow the timeline only from Halloween one, like if you disregard every sequel that has happened in the franchise mm. after Halloween one, so how bad killer is Michael Myers in that case? Because the trailer actually seems to go ways out of it, its league to push you the image that Michael Myers is some kind of a legendary badass serial killer, like the living nightmare, a boogeyman. Like, uh, I mean, in, in the trailer, there is, I don't know, are, are the dudes trying to make some kind of a document of about serial killers? Is that what they are doing? Yeah. Uh, what, what, what is the point when they are visiting the institution? Yeah, okay. So the idea is that there's a British uh, film documentary group and they want to make a documentary out of the events of the 1978 killings. And why would you want to do that? Well, like, it's, it's, why? A, it's a movie. They, they need a motive. They need a vehicle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They they need a more motive, but I would say that without the sequels, they don't have one. Like, I mean, I mean, they wanna they wanna make a documentary about about Michael Myers killing spree on the original film, and at the asylum, Michael Myers is seen as the worst of the worst when he's in the exercise yard where we first see him. Yeah. When the documentary crew approaches him, great shot, by the way. Yeah, he's kind of a, he's isolated on his own space where he's been tied to the floor with chains. Like he's been chained to the ground. Yeah. Why? I mean, what, what is the point? Because if we go only with the first Halloween movie, Michael Myers' kill count is four people. Mm. First victim, which was when he was, you know, six years old. And after that, you know, if we disregard Halloween 2, that means that Michael goes down at the end of Halloween 1 and they manage to capture him. Like, he does not survive Loomis shooting him and falling down from the balcony and just shut it off. But he goes down for the count at that moment and they because they have to manage to capture him. So... Yeah. How, how is Michael Myers the living nightmare in that case? The dude kills four people in total, three, only three people on his famous killing spree. And after that, he stopped like, God damn it. Like, what, what's the big deal in there? Okay. Why, why are they so interested about Michael Myers? Okay, well, uh, maybe I haven't been paying, paying attention to the trailer as much as you, but weren't they all chained in the courtyard if, uh, in 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 any instance the idea here is to get back to the actual roots the original intention of michael myers as envisioned by john carpenter and deborah hill so they are making michael myers basically human again but with this supernatural edge so he is a man he is probably able to die actually and they believe, and I believe, that this will make Michael Myers more interesting and more scary than the literally supernatural Michael Myers from Halloween 2 onwards, or at least Halloween 2 ending onwards. Yeah, I, I really, you know, I'm on a different side of the fence, fence there. Like, I, I, I can see the argument and 
I, I can see how it helps the things that, you know, Michael is made more human. And, you know, that sub- supernatural element of him is kind of a disregarded. But a- at the same time, I'm kind of a worrying on what it does to Michael Myers as the boogeyman. I think he will which, be just fine like he was in the first movie. I, I'm I'm afraid that it will. And this is this is once again us coming back to the, the topic of us seeing Michael differently in this first movie. I don't know. Do do we see him differently? Maybe we are just talking past another. Yeah, that that, that can be the point. Yeah. Yeah, we both agree that he has this supernatural flavor or edge to him. And definitely the things that he does are not something that uh, like a normal man would be able to. Like, for example, Jamie is looking, Jamie Lee Curtis, Laurie Strode is looking over his window and seeing... Michael Myers between the the sheets and he just disappears when he's keeping direct eye contact to him all the time. Yeah, but that that's one of the things. You don't really know if he went behind the sheets or if he just magically disappeared or what happened there. That's the whole, what this movie is doing. It's kind of playing with your mind. You don't know what the hell is really going on. Yeah, my take on the other hand is that, yeah, like, like I said before, you know, Halloween one... It's a story on, you know, Michael's transformation from a man to a, to a boogeyman. He kind of transforms from being simply a flesh and blood human to this supernatural slasher killer. That's, that's how I've always seen Halloween. Where does this transition take place when he uh, is taken to the mental asylum for the first time or... My take is that it happens low, slowly throughout the film. Like Michael Myers starts as a human being. And that's what Michael is when he escapes the asylum. This is why the mention, you're mentioning the, the French when he escapes the mental asylum is so important to me. Because that star- ties more into, you know, my interpretation of the film. But... When he escapes, he's still human, and almost throughout the entire film, he is human. He slowly transforms into this supernatural boogeyman Mm. that he is at the very last minutes of the film. Yeah, fair enough. Why not? I I can grant that. But you're saying that he literally turns into something that is not human by the end of the movie. Yeah, I, I, my take on, you know, Michael Myers in, in the first Halloween, ever since I first time saw it hmm. as a kid, has always been that he's not human at the end of the film. He, he's not human when he gets stabbed two times, when he gets shot by Loomis and he falls off the balcony and he just shrugs it off, you know, just... In a matter of seconds, he just rises up and, you know, disappears again. Up until that point, I would say that he's been slowly becoming kind of a creature that can do that. He he has been slowly becoming a slasher movie villain. Okay, but you... you don't, and you, at, Yeah, and at that point, he finally reaches his peak. And from, from the point on, when Loomis looks down at the balcony and sees that Michael has disappeared from that moment on... He's finally finished his transformation and he has become a slasher movie villain. 
Okay, I can totally understand your viewpoints. But let's say that this was real life and he would get stabbed twice. He would get a knitting needle in the eye. He would get a coat hanger somewhere and then also shot six times. There was a good example by a certain someone from YouTube called David McRae. And he told about these crazy things that can happen to a human body. There was this guy who got attacked by a bear, then got attacked again. His legs and his arms were all fucked up. And he just got into the car and drove himself like whatever it was, 15, 20 miles up somewhere and got admitted to the hospital. And he survived the trip. I mean, adrenaline can do a lot of incredible things to your body under certain circumstances. Let's say that Loomis didn't put all the bullets into the right direction. Let's say that he missed some vital organs. You don't really know. I guess that's the appeal of the movie. You're not quite sure. Yeah, that that kind of is. I, I would also say that this ties on, you know, how Michael acts throughout the film. Yeah. Like, he, he kind of... Uh, in, in doing the film, you know, from start to finish, he suddenly starts to have abilities. He starts to act in a way that is way more professional. He's actually quite methodical. Have you ever given more thought about how it seems pretty planned out that he goes get the tombstone of Judith Myers? drives that heavy thing with his car, I suppose, to the Wallace house and then gathers all the bodies there. And there were some other parts in the movie where he's really methodical. I guess when he goes to the hardware store in between stalking the babysitters. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it, it's it, precisely on that medic- methodical side where I also see kind of this transformation happening in Michael. Like, his first kill, killing his sister at the beginning of the film, it's not really methodical at all. You know, if if something you could say that Michael completely screws it up, throughout the film, I see Michael making many mistakes by being seen by Laurie and not, not being as subtle as one should be in the situation that Michael is in. Yeah, but you have a point there. He, he is a bit of a boogeyman. He enjoys playing with his prey and he knows that he can get away with it. Yeah, and I, I see that part of that those scenes are Michael simply toying with his victims, which I, I always tied more closely on transformation into a boogeyman. Like that, those are kind of essential steps you have to take if you want to become the boogeyman, the stuff of nightmares that Michael is at the end of the film. Uh, some of those scenes, I would say, is simply Michael Myers screwing up. What do you think is more scary to you then? Uh, is it that, is it more scary for you to think that Michael Myers is something completely out of this world? Or he's just some random guy who got from the hospital and is trying to kill these babysitters tonight? I kind of always have enjoyed the thought of this meta aspect in in Halloween, where it would also, while being a slasher film of its time, it would also 
kind of a documented the process that one has to go to become from a man to a boogeyman. Like, like I, I say that I see that in that it's saying something about the slasher genre and horror movies as a as a genre. I think the most supernatural moment in the movie is though Charles Cyphers, the Sherry Flea Brackett's chest hair. Did you take a look? No, I, I've always missed the chest hair. Yeah, it's literally coming out of his pretty long t-shirt. So Lee Brackett, that name was also a name of some screenplay writer for Hollywood. That's a lot of things like that. For example, Michael Myers, I think he was some kind of a movie publisher also. And uh, John Carpenter had the bright idea to kind of give him some hat tip. And what would be the better way than to give it in the form of a serial killer. I don't know. Maybe give, give the tipping of the hat basically in any other character other than the serial killer. <laughs> yeah. And I heard that he was like the sweetest man that you could ever imagine. Like what a prize. What a prize. Yeah. It, it, it's something that I have re- uh, heard that happens repeatedly in in horror. And especially among horror Writers, yeah, where it's kind of a scene as a act of appraisal and act of giving respect to your colleague that you kill his namesake in your book or film. And I, I, I've always kind of wondered how how that feels from the the object of that respect, like how Stephen King would feel or does feel when, for example, Clive Parker would kill him in one of his novels. But <laughs> would he really like that? Well, it, when it comes to John Carpenter, I thought that he always had this kind of smart-ass quality about him. He probably does it uh, and in, in, enjoys playing with these things. The film was shot in Pasadena, California, and is supposed to be based in, uh, in Illinois. And the Haddonfield town name, it's uh, f- actually from a town in New Jersey where Deborah Hill was living. So there's a lot of hat tips here and there. And Carpenter has described the filming as a bunch of kids making a movie. Well, I don't get the vibe, but I know what he's what he's talking about, what he means. I, I... Because the whole crew was so young. Most of the people were in their 20s. I can kind of uh, see his point and get the vibe in a sense that, in my opinion, in Halloween, there there is noticeable kind of a enjoyment just making a movie and just filming. And there there is kind of a, there is this experimental attitude on the way how Halloween has been shot. It's, it, I, I'm not, and I'm not saying any of this uh, trash the movie, like it's extremely extremely professionally done and extremely effective horror film. But I, I always get this sense that there is real enjoyment and real enthusiasm behind the scenes of Halloween. I can definitely see the in- enjoyment. Uh, also, it becomes a cross in the script. And Deborah Hill was responsible for at least the majority of all the girl talk. And for me, it sounds really natural. Maybe nobody, I'm not, I'm not sure because I'm not native, but I would think that 
people don't use words like Jericho anymore. But yeah, the, it's like a girl talk. It sounds very convincing. Yeah, the only issue I have is with what was the character? Was it Linda? Yeah, who constantly says totally. Totally. And it, yeah, and you know, that that is the one part where I was so nearly almost driven the need to strangle her. It's one of my favorite things in the movie. Totally. Yeah, god damn, that, that really grinds my gears. <laughs> and did you know that Carpenter was going through many auditions? And when he was listening to PJ Soul's perform- performance of Totally, he was like, aha, that's the Totally that I want <laughs> out of my actor. Yeah, yeah, that that's the Totally that Totally deserves to be knifed. <laughs> They had ap- approximately four weeks to prepare for the film, 21 days to shoot the film in the spring of 1978, and about four weeks for post-production. At least if we can believe Irvin Jablans, the producer's memory at this point. But all in all, it was a really, really quick production with a really, really low budget. Even though if you go back and look at the other great Carpenter movie, Assault on Precinct 13, released two years before Halloween, it was made on about $100,000 budget. Perhaps you can see it, but it's also really beautifully shot. Beautifully shot and executed. And it reminds me of Halloween, I guess. Uh, maybe the crew is so so similar that you can kind of tell that you get the same kind of vibe. Maybe also they used a similar kind of film or processing for that film. It looks really clean and beautiful. So yeah, there was not a lot of time for rehearsing and everybody did a little bit of everything on the set. Some even came to help for free. You know, you're making movies. I would help as well. Uh, they had to fake some stuff like the autumn or the fall leaves and due to budget constraints or just keeping the streets clean, they had to recollect all these leaves after every shot. But that's kind of the magic of the old school in the filmmaking. And those, those kind of stories, like uh, there, there is a lot of the same spirit and the same attitude in the making of the original Evil Dead. Yeah. I, I've always kind of loved loved hearing those memories and those stories of making Evil Dead, the first Evil Dead, where, where you can kind of find this exact same attitude that Carpenter and Carpenter and his friends had when making Halloween. Yeah, you get that kind of a tightly knit production feeling, tightly knit kind of family vibe. Yeah, and you you get the sense that there is a group of people who are kind of going what essentially is unknown, even to them, like how, how the film will turn out in the end. And going for that and doing it just for the, for the love of filmmaking, it's kind of a, I, I would say, even even hopeful to see that kind of attitude and that kind of a spirit in the in the business of filmmaking. How familiar are you with the soundtrack of Halloween? The first song that we hear in the movie is from a Carpenter's own band. It's an unknown, untitled song when Jamie Lee Curtis or Laurie Strode gets into the car of Annie 
we hear this chalalala, chalalala. It sounds like an Elvis Presley song or something. So it was one of from Carpenter's collections. But yeah, there is the main theme of the movie. Carpenter did this soundtrack in its entirety. He wrote this soundtrack in its entirety in three days. That's incredible. So he must have done the... I think it, it took a couple of hours for him to do the actual main theme. So here's an interesting question for you. What, what do you think? Because I'm kind of split here. You know, the main theme is iconic as can be, but he's both a kind of a genius in the sense that he cannot even read written music, but he can come up with these incredibly catchy uh, piano things, even though I think he didn't really pay too much attention for creating this soundtrack. I think he was just coming up with it as fast as he did because of time constraints. And I know that John Carpenter is the type of guy who just wants to get things done. So he's both kind of a genius in that way that he can come up with something so effective in such a short time. And at the same time, I think he didn't quite even think about doing anything revolutionary or incredible. It just, it just, it just came out. I'm more on, you know, the genius side of things when it comes to John Carpenter's music. The dude has made some really everlasting themes. Mm-hmm. Like, like there's a real craftsmanship in some of the soundtracks of his movies and some of the theme songs that he has made. And the fact that if what you are saying is true, that he he didn't think about it that much. I, I would say that not thinking about it too much and still coming up with these really effective theme songs kind of speaks volume on Carpenter having this some, some kind of a talent and some kind of a touch, a real touch on making synthesizer themes. Give the man a synthesizer and few keynotes. And even without thinking it that much, he can come up with an effective theme. And I think that speaks volumes for him having a real talent. And he was so early in his career that probably these things are just popping into his head just like that. I mean, if you're creative at all, then there's probably some some things that you always wanted to be created. And then they just like a Guns N' Roses or whatever favorite band you might have usually their be- uh, first album is the best it just happens organically like that but all in all definitely a genius as far as i'm concerned yeah and there is since we are talking about you know john carpenter and his music uh, there is also well i'm i'm certain that we both know the uh, john carpenter's the thing yeah it throughout classic film there as, as well. But with the thing and with the uh, score of the thing, there, there was that uh, Ennio Morricone was hired to compose the score for the movie. And he did have this really full orchestral score made for, for the film. And uh, I've read from somewhere that Carpenter came from there and kind of a, just on his own made this synthesizer score to play with Morricone's work. 
And when you watch the film, you don't even really recognize Morricone's orchestral work. You you just kind of uh, get the carpenter synthesizer thing. And that's the main element of the themes uh, or of the score of the thing and its soundscape. Just to give a, a separate example on what the carpenter can give and how effective he is if you give him a synthesizer and a couple of hours. I have had so much time to research this film in the last two weeks. I've been reading even about the freaking synthesizers that he used for this movie. Uh, it's it's a brand called Moog or Moog is probably how you pronounce it. M-O-O-G. It was a Moog 3 model that Carpenter used for this movie. I believe they these are only <laughs> very scarcely available today. and But the company is still alive and they have made some re-released versions of these old synthesizer desks. They're quite pricey. They start from at least Moog 3 versions. They start from around $35,000 each. Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. But they sound pretty good. I always kind of like the old kind of 80s, 70s synthesizer sound soundtracks. I really enjoy that. And there's a mini Moog, kind of a re-release version. Uh, I think it's the cheapest model. Uh, mini Moog D, $3,749. Would be kind of nice to try one of those, even though I can't play. About the theme song, the theme song that you hear in the movie is different from the soundtrack version. Did you know that? Uh, no. So in the soundtrack version, you hear uh, added beat in comparison to the movie version of the movie theme. So the original has this piano. And in the background, you have this nice little synth. But when you go listen to the soundtrack, there is the... And then there's an added beat. And this has been in the following sequels, Halloween 2 and onwards. I think they've always used that. It's also in the new trailer of the Halloween 2018. As far as preference goes, I think the original sound or the original theme in the movie works much better uh, atmospherically with the movie. It goes together. But with the beat, yeah, I like it with the beat as well. But it's more fitting for, let's say, a John Carpenter synth orchestra concert or something party related or something when you're not watching the movie I would I would definitely go with the beat as well okay yeah I have to admit that I'm so tone deaf myself that I've never picked up that oomph. yeah the funny thing is I never noticed that myself either un- un- until somebody mentioned me that yeah there is this and oomph 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 din dun dun. <laughs> okay yeah, well, thanks for ruining the theme for me the rest of my life. You're welcome. Yeah, it's nice to be working with you. <laughs> well, just put on your Blu-ray and you will hear it correctly. <laughs> yeah. Lighting is done by God himself. His name is Dean Condy. 
Uh, Dean Cundy became to be one of the most well-known and most respected guys in the whole industry. His cinematography is off the charts here. One of the most memorable things in this movie is, if we have to name a single scene, it would be the one where Michael comes from the shadows. It's They're kind of mimicking the effect that your eyes are kind of getting used to the amount of light that you see. So gradually your eyes are adapting to the light and then you see Michael behind Laurie in this iconic scene when Michael attacks and they use the blue light in, in the face. They use the blue light prominently throughout the movie and it gives this movie this very, very eerie effect of otherworldly and obviously cold coloring. And the movie is pretty darn dark. It's almost impossible to find a movie that is relatively this dark nowadays. You need a lot of darkness to make the scene scary. You need a lot of places in the frame that you cannot see at all. And this is a big problem with most of the modern horror movies that I see nowadays. It might be dark outside, but usually you see most of the whole area. Or if you don't, they are using the type of lighting that has been post-processed to hell in the editing room. And it just doesn't look organic anymore, if it ever did. Yeah, I'm kind of once again two-sided on the horror movie needing the darkness to work. Mostly I say I'm I, I'm with you. In horror movies it really helps if the if the image is dark and the more shadows there are the better the scene. But there I, I think there there is there are some horror movies that have really effective scenes and really great moments in what pretty much is full light lighting. For example, the remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, in my opinion, really has extremely great scenes that happens in in broad daylight. Yeah, now that you mentioned it, I wasn't a big fan of the remake, but I remember the lighting being really ominous and well-made. Yeah, I, I on the other hand, always... I, I did like the remake better than the original. As heretical as it is for me to say, and even though I'm fairly certain that it will get me kicked out of this podcast, but still, I I prefer the remake. You're fired. Just kidding. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> nice knowing you, man. <laughs> no, but uh, I kind of lost interest in one sense in the remake when they went to the... We see the whole family, I guess, of Leatherface. And it just starts to get a little otherworldly. Uh, yeah, uh, I, yeah, this is, this is once again those things that you have to go with the feeling and the image you get from what you are seeing. Uh, and I always prefer, uh, or I prefer the family in the remake. Okay. Over the one in the original, I always felt that the in the original, the family, for example, was too comedical. Okay, I don't remember so well. It's been so long time. Yeah, yeah, same here. Maybe we have to revisit, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre <laughs> also in some of the future episodes. Yeah, why not? Sounds good. Sounds good. I'm I'm game. 
We could talk about the problem that we have with the audio nowadays. The masterings. The audio, it is not well mixed ever in this film's digital releases. So now we're talking about the DVD world and the Blu-ray world, basically. As far as I remember these, of course, it could be the audio is a little bit out of whack in the original mono. I would say that they made a lot of changes in the DVD, Blu-ray, digital releases. Most of all, it's obvious that the audio is too high volume every time we get a spook. It's too high compared to the lows. So that's There's actually some fan-made mixes of the soundtrack or the movie sound where they have leveled it correctly, that it's not jumping. It's the, so that it's not destroying your ears for your life after some horrific scene. This is the case why you should never have, have abandoned the VHS. <laughs> like, there, this is what you get for wanting, you know, high quality picture and sound and all the DVD extras. There's other problems as well. <clears throat> like, uh, this is sacrilegious. Uh, there are added sound effects on top of the original mono soundtrack to get a more surround-like experience from the sound. For example, when Sam Loomis and Marion Chambers are approaching Smith's Crow Sanitarium, there's thunder outside and there's added thunder sound layers that are so obvious on top of the original sound. I noticed that immediately when I got the first DVD. Also, to me, it sounds like there's some technical problems in the whole remastering of this sound. For example, for me, it seems that they don't have the separate sounds available to them anymore. So what they have in the original form is just the mono soundtrack, which has already the music and the rest of the sound in it. So they cannot separate it. They want to have more surround sound experience in the music. They want to put the music soundtrack on top of the original mono. And then it sounds like there's a sound like music in the background behind the music that is on top. You know what I'm saying? So it sounds like the music is there two times. And I think this is most clear in the moments when you hear in the original mono soundtrack that the audio goes slightly out of sync or it it goes a little bit off key because of old tape or whatever. <laughs> and it sounds like a double music. What, what, once again, VHS Master Race. And also the gunshots in the end of the movie. I think they have been replaced. I'm not sure, but I think this was the case. It's pretty obvious, I guess, if you go and see it. So the movie was really low budget, but that didn't chop Mr. John Carpenter from making the movie look like a really expensive movie in the sense that you can see that the picture quality is really good in the reels. You can see that the audio processing is just fine, at least in the original mono soundtrack. So what they did was they went through the most expensive film processing that was available. They went through the most expensive sound processing that was available to them. So they really wanted to give this movie this uh, expensive, more quality feel. 
and it really paid off. Yeah, well, I I've mostly been stuck with the VHS version. So when, when it comes to the soundscape of Blu-ray, I'm kind of out of my element. Have you seen the TV version of this movie? There's a couple of added scenes. They added and filmed these scenes in 1981 during the production of Halloween 2 because uh, it was some channel, was it ABC or NBC, and they needed to make the movie longer. They had already made some cuts to the original movie because they couldn't show all the horrible gore of the first Halloween 1. So they removed some moments and then they saw that, oops, this movie is too short now, let's shoot some additional scenes, please, Mr. John Carpenter. And they did. There, there was gore in Halloween 1. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. like in what part exactly? Yeah, that's my question as well. <laughs> you know, uh, like I can't actually remember any, any real blood spatters in the film. That's because there is no blood spatters and there is very little blood in general in this movie. Yeah, like in the opening killing, which is, we or which could be the most graphic of the murders, you you don't see any blood flying over, you know, when Michael stabs his sister. You, you only see some of it once he's outside of the house, once his parents intervene and there is the camera shot kind of uh, distancing him, distancing itself from Michael. Yeah, you have to really wonder what the hell they were cutting away from this movie. What can you actually cut? Where do you cut? Yeah. What, what do you cut? There's nothing happening. Like, it, it's all suggested, except maybe Judith laying on the floor with blood, but that's like the after effect. Yeah, that's an, that's an after effect. And even that, you know, it's it's quite far away taken shot, so you don't actually... There is no visible stab wounds. It's just a human body with blood on it. Yep. So so there there is no, you know, close-up shot to the stab wound, even in that scene. Yep. So maybe it's a, it's a situation like, for example, in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, where also in the shower stabbing scene, there is no visible hits, there's no blood spatter on that scene. But yet, once again, the sensors kind of in their mind saw all these graphical knife hits and were constantly demanding that Alfred Hitchcock would cut the shower scene and remove the violence. Going as far as in the end, Hitchcock didn't even cut the scene in any way. He just took the notes given to him by the censor board and did nothing to the film, sent it back to the censors and just claimed that he had made the cuts. <laughs> yeah, the first scene in the TV version is when uh, Sam Loomis is talking with uh, two people who are some kind of a court hearing. Sam Loomis argues that Michael Myers is the most dangerous patient that he has ever observed. And the, of course, the court don't agree with him at all. He's always fighting with these outside forces. He's trying to convince Lee Brackett. He's trying to convince these two people. And the following scene after this one is when 
Sam Loomis walks to the Michael's room when he's still a kid. And he says to Michael something like, you fooled them all, didn't you? But not me. It's a nice scene, but it's unnecessary, really. The second scene is when Linda is in the house of, of Laurie Strode. And Linda wants to borrow Laurie's dress. And Jamie Lee Curtis is holding her hair up in a bath towel. Because during this scene, she only had like a short hair. So they had to cover it up. The wig that she wears in Halloween 2 is quite bad looking. But I never knew that it was a wig until somebody pointed me in the right direction. So I guess it's not too bad either. Yeah, that's kind of the thing with these classical movies that you always need someone else to point you to point you all the shortcomings and the changes that happens during the filming and then the film is forever ruined for you. <laughs> Yeah, I can't f- say that I was feeling scared when I was watching Halloween again for the hundredth time or so. I look at it as a piece of art, like a great piece of filmmaking. But of course, now that you know so much about everything, you that's the problem when you go to film school. It's, it's kind of starting to ruin the film experience a little bit for you. Or you look at it in a different way. The scene where Annie and Laurie are in the car... I always found it kind of amusing and unbelievable that Annie actually wants to smoke a joint with Laurie in a car that is owned by her mom. So that should leave some kind of a smell into the car, don't you think? And second of all, they just go around the corner and then there is Mr. Charles Cyphers or Lee Brackett waiting for them. And she's like, my dad! What a surprise. Yeah, and they kind of stash away the joint immediately, you know, seeing her dad. I'm pretty sure, at least in reality, he would have been able to smell it. Yeah, yeah. Since they have been smoking in the car, he and they have just been smoking, and they just stashed the joint. So in that case, he should have been able to smell it. But in the in the film's defense, Laurie does make the argument that the dad did smell the joint. And then we switch from evening lighting very fast to the nighttime. It's a, it happens a little bit suddenly, but it doesn't really bother me. Who knows what they did between this shot and the next? Maybe they went to a hardware store and got some couple of masks or bought some popcorn. Or maybe they were just doing a 360 ten times in a row and then came back. Yeah, that's one edit that I can actually see all the movie nitpicking side just tearing it apart and pointing out that what, how long is this one driveway? Or how long does it take for them to drive from place A to place B? Since it's, it, it changes from daytime to nighttime. You have to wonder it a little bit though when you think about Sam Loom is at the end of the movie and he's waiting outside of the Myers house. And curiously, in the beginning of the movie, when Laurie and Tommy are walking together by the street, Tommy is choosing this part of the town to walk to school, which should be far as hell from his home. What is he doing there if they need to drive from close to the Myers house, which should be close to the hardware store, by the way. They they drive from there 
to Tommy's house, and it seems to take at least, well, it's it's suggested that it could take up to 20-30 minutes to drive there. Yeah, but then again, you know, the locations locations of the houses in Haddonfield is kind of one of those things that are forever shrouded in mystery. Because the, the whole architecture of the town of Haddonfield kind of a keeps on changing as the movie goes on. Really? Well, that that's my take or take on the situation. Seeing how the distances, how far big distances some of the characters appear to travel and routes that they take and some of the conclusions that the characters can come up during the during the film. Like, for example, Loomis, at the end of the film, noticing the car that Michael stole at the beginning of the film, where he, he just notices it in you know one of the street corners, abandoned, and immediately can kind of uh, piece together that Michael is, at the moment, moving on a three-block radius. That's a weird shot, right? <clears throat> because when Loomis is looking at the car for the first time, it seems like the car is at a short distance. That's the idea that I get from there. But when he starts walking, the car is actually uh, like a little bit further away. But if you go by that first look at the car, it seems kind of ridiculous. How did you not notice this? And even then, how did you not notice that if you were standing there for hours? Yeah, yeah, you have spent the whole goddamn day standing next to the the Myers house, waiting for Michael to come there. And in the end, it, it appears that Michael just parks the car right near Loomis, and Loomis does not actually notice anything. Because it, it kind of has to be somewhere pretty near where Loomis is having his, his takeout because, uh, for Loomis to actually pinpoint that that is the specific car that Michael stole at the at the beginning of the film so that he gets interested enough about the car to go to check it out more closely. Yeah, I really like Donald Pleasance's performance here and he gives kind of this <laughs> English prestigious quality to the film. I think all the perform- performances in this movie are really just fine and even great. I have nothing really to nitpick about the performances or if you want to get really evil you could say that Tommy Doyle actor his performance wasn't that good when he was getting Annie and his other little girl they're getting inside the house and he's saying something like come on in we're making a jack lantern it didn't sound really natural but yeah blah 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 all around really good performances and a kind of Donald Pleasance kind of seals the deal. Not sure if he had many like standout movies per se, but I think he was really well-known actor even at the time. Not like Sean Connery level or something, but he was a known actor and probably most known for his You Only Live Twice performance as Blofeld in the James Bond movie from 1967. It's kind of weird, don't you think, that here we have like a doctor and he's talking about Myers as he were some kind of a supernatural 
entity, which undoubtedly gives legitimacy for Myers. And we think of him as more scary when we hear him say those iconic lines about the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. But coming from a psychiatrist, it, it's, it's, it, it's kind of, it doesn't make sense. It, yeah, well, it makes sense in the, in, in the case that you actually see Halloween as a transformation tale for Michael Myers from Man to Boogeyman. Yeah, okay. Yeah, like I, I, I would say that is the moment when my reading of the film is confirmed by everyone. But even from the starting point of the film, when he escapes with the car, Sam Loomis is like, oh, the evil is gone. Evil is gone from here. Yeah, but that's that, that's purely because uh, Loomis has read the script and he knows what happens at the end of the film. <laughs> if I would have to take a wild guess, maybe this is where Donald Pleasance was not too happy with the, with the script. He, he was just doing what John Carpenter asked him to do. I heard one interview where he was like saying that he wasn't too happy with every aspect in the dialogue in the movie, but uh, he of course respects the director's choices and goes by what is in the script. And and then I also heard something about that that he was just saying this in this report or in this interview to kind of give John Carpenter an uneasy feel or kind of testing him perhaps that do you really believe in this production? Like he was playing there. Okay. Was, was this after the film was released? Uh, during, during, okay. I think during the filming. I, I must say that that sounds like a big move on Donald Presence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't, don't take my word for it, but this is the information that I, collected to my brain yeah i'm i'm not questioning your trivia there i mean that that could be something that donald would actually would have done <laughs> and uh, of course uh, you can if that if that holds true if donald really did say that it, it kind of a it, it of course plays for the point of you know making sure that the director uh, John Carpenter re- really is confident on what he is doing, so that at that point he can still back away and just bu- bu- end the shoot and bury the film without releasing a movie that he is not one hundred percent certain. But I, I would see, still say that that's kind of playing the hardball there, g- giving out a statement like that while they are still making the film. Yeah. Yeah, I heard the, he was indeed testing him in the ways that he was trying to see if he really understands his own characters. Are they fleshed out enough? But kind of interesting still because we already know that John Carpenter was really meticulous with all of his scripts and he could see in his mind how the scenes would look like which is usually the sign of a good director, that he actually knows what he wants it to look like before he actually shoots it, even though the end result will be always different. Like, they say that there's actually three movies that you shoot. The one that is in your head, the one that you shoot, and the one that is the final result. This is why John Carpenter was quite able to 
convince Irvin Yablans and Mustafa Akkad, two, uh, these are the producers, that he's able to do this film because he was so vivid in his description of the scenes. He was kind of creating the scenes in front of them when he was talking about it. The, the ideas that he had or the script that he had written at that point. I found a funny audio commentary version of this movie. <laughs> I, I haven't laughed so much in a while. There's these two guys that apparently do movie commentaries to several films and then they give like a commentaries on the moments when they happen. Like they did some pretty good notes about Laurie's room like Laurie plays tennis. Apparently the, there's a tennis racket in her room. <laughs> and then this note about the carpenter that says uh, that it was a pretty young boy. And then they're like, Judith Myers was a young boy. <laughs> and then when uh, Sam Loomis and Lee Brackett go to the Myers house, they find the dog dead on the floor. And Loomis says that this is not man. And they say, we already established it was a dog. (laughs) 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 It's uh, definitely worth looking at. There's like a three-minute YouTube video of this. If you want to check it out, I will send the link to you later. Yeah, I I would actually like to to see that one. And and, and when Laurie Strode is in the Doyle's house babysitting, they're just starting to watch the movie The Thing and the opening titles come on. And I've also always been kind of perplexed by the next shot. Of course, they probably didn't have enough takes. So they show the start titles and then it cuts when they're on the sofa and Jamie Lee Curtis's rolling hair looks like really engaged with the movie. And there's a comment in this comment track that, wow, I've never seen anyone so captivated by opening titles. Yeah. My thoughts exactly. The wood-powered laundry center. Not sure what happened there. First, Annie is unable to make the washing machine to work in the laundry room. And then suddenly it just starts working. First of all, Annie, she sprinkles some butter on her shirt. And it's just a shirt as far as I know. But when this happens, she takes off all of her clothes. Except the underwear, of course. And she's in a neighbor's house. She's not in her own home. But she takes off all of her clothes, packs it up, goes to the laundry room. Now, okay, you're going to a date with your boyfriend. But who would go to the effort to go in a neighbor's house to wash your clothes? And then at the end, still ends up just going in some throwaway clothes to her boyfriend. But it gets killed in the car. So all for nothing. Yeah, there was also, you know, with the whole bother on the clothes, clothes scene, uh, the whole kind of a point that, okay, yeah, you got, you get your clothes dirty and covered in butter. That's fine. So the kind of a logical thing there would be, of course, taking them to the uh, for washing. But at the same time, you know, since you, as you mentioned, she's at someone else's house. She's not in her own home. So where can she actually find new set of clothes since her own are still going to be wet for quite some time for having them washed? Yeah, indeed. It <laughs> seems too complicated. 
Well, it was, they were more liberal times. Back then, if you were a, were a babysitter, you could just take your customers' clothes and borrow them for the day. Right. Oh, that's my take on the American culture during the 1978. The response wasn't really that impressive when this movie came out. The initial response was like, Carpenter isn't very gifted with actors. Uh, the boogeyman's turning up just gets to be a nuisance. And uh, more comments are such as, more in the way of trick than a treat. Script is absurd. Dumb scariness. It's kind of kind of surprising. But I guess everyone was kind of reflecting on the Alfred Hitchcock productions before that. And then they see that, oh, this is just some young copycat and... Yeah, I don't like this movie. But uh, yeah, Alfred Hitchcock was an inspiration for John Carpenter for the style of this film. It's evident all the way. And he's doing a really damn good job. So a bit surprising that it got such a harsh response. But it only needs like a few critiques and then you can put this uh, movie in a really bad position. But as it turns out, I don't know if it was like late 1978 or early 1979 or even later. But then the more favorable reviews started to came out. For example, uh, Roger Ebert gave it four stars and compared this film to Psycho. And there was an, another review. And it just kind of got the word of mouth effect around the same time. And we all know what happened then. It became the most successful independent movie of its time. And held the title for quite some time. You could take some kind of social arguments to the whole movie. Let's see, for example, Vietnam War ended on 1975. That could play a role. There was a film critic who thought that this kind of explains how people are now happy-go-lucky and we have this small town where nothing happens and then everything goes out of whack. I don't think there was any intent like that. But maybe that um, kind of added to the horror of the movie at that time. If you go to YouTube, there's a video from 1979 when people are watching the movie and you hear the audience reacting to the ending of the movie, the part where Michael stands up and then turns his head to look at Laurie. They are truly terrified. The whole crowd is going like, that I've never heard something like that before. So, sounds like the movie was pretty effective at the time. I wish I would have been alive during that time. I wish I could have experienced this movie at its most terrifying level. Too bad I chose film school or media studies. Everything is ruined. There was a novelization about this movie. Uh, it would have been nice to read it as a, like a research for this episode, but... It starts from $245. It's out of print. Everybody said that it's really great, perhaps even better than the movie. So I'm kind of curious. Maybe I'll get it at some point somewhere. And there was also a video game where you're the babysitter and you're trying to save as many children as you can. And at some point the shape or Michael Myers appears and he's following you and you have to avoid him The game was kind of gory or pretty violent, pretty violent. If Michael Myers catches you, your head drops off, but your body still keeps moving. 
at least for some time. And the Halloween team is playing. It was released for Atari. Is it Atari 2600? Yeah, I I remember playing that game. What? With, yeah, yeah, with not emulators on my not laptop. Wow, I thought it was like really hard to find print. Yeah, yeah, the the, the print is extremely hard to find, and for the life of me, I did not know any sites where you could get ROMs of the game. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We, 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 we do not endorse piracy in this podcast. <laughs> no, of course not. Out of the question. Yeah. We support the big studios and their conglomerate. All right. How do you feel is the legacy of Halloween? There is before and after Halloween, but it's not so simple. There were some movies like Black Christmas and others that also already made some traits that the Halloween is depicting here. So Halloween was not the only one that did some of these modern traits, but I suppose Halloween was the first that kind of established all of those certain traits in the in this one film, in this nice, famous package that everybody tried to emulate. All the producers and directors were going through their calendars, trying to find other moments of the year where you could place your movie. So there was Halloween, so now there's Friday the 13th and uh, Valentine's Day. And so, yeah, they tried everything, but most of them were pretty gory and not even anywhere near as stylistic and uh, professional as Halloween. Is Halloween now dated, Henrik? Um, I, I would say, or I don't know, actually. Like like I said before, you I would say you could not make that kind of movie today and find this cult following and this appreciation that Halloween has gathered. I think it holds up really well today. There are some scenes that, well, you could argue that it's the problem of the small budget and different ways to edit film at the time. Yeah, it shows shows its age a little bit here and there. But most of the time, it's not even a bad thing. Yeah, but, you know, does it hold hold up? And is it not, is it not a bad thing? Because we saw this film when we were, when we were like 10 years old. And because this is an old film. We are biased and brainwashed. So it's hard yeah. to be really clear on, 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 on this. Yeah, I mean, in the end, you also have to take note that this was a huge box office success back on today. Like, this made its budget back in, in millions, in tens of millions. So in that case, and I would make the argument that would you make a film like Halloween today, you would not get that kind of a return at the box office. Nope. And in that that sense, this could... I, w- I would say that this is kind of a dated film and, you know, the appreciation that it's given, it's, it's partly given because it came out when it came out, because it came out in 1978. Of course, everything is a period piece in one way or another. There's no avoiding it but i think it holds holds up really well 
it, it shows its age also, but I think it shows its age pretty gracefully. Would you get a movie like this nowadays? No, no, it would be more polished. It would have 156 people doing the lighting and this 55 different compartments doing editing and special effects and, and makeup and and it would not feel so organic unless it would be really low budget and some kind of a miracle work. Yeah. I don't know how much It Follows did, but in this uh, zeitgeist, it's not possible probably to do this kind of miracles where you have a 325,000 production and then make it up to 70 million in the box office. Yeah, I mean, you you could make this kind of a film as an $325,000 independent movie, like Halloween was when it came out. Yeah, but... Uh, but, but you you wouldn't get the 70 million box office. You you wouldn't, I would I would say, argue, you wouldn't even get a theatric, uh, theatrical release. You would go straight to DVD and you would sell 2,000 copies, what would be my estimate, or the most DVDs you would sell today, making a film like Halloween. Yeah, there's, again, so many things to consider here. The whole film industry has dilapidated in the sense that now you can download torrents and find your favorite movie just like that, which, of course, hurts the sales, the film industry, the box office. And I'm not sure if the industry has found any proper way to counter that. In the music business, you can probably market the concerts pretty well to make up for for that piracy. But movies? Yeah, I guess no. When it comes to movies, it's a completely different market. And there is such uh, so many ways to make money with movies today. Mo- movies basically have become uh, a form of entertainment where the box office doesn't even matter today, unless you are a multi-million dollar dollar production like Transformers or Marvel movie. There, There the box office can still be a huge deal. But in many ways, movies these days, they make up their profits outside of film theater release. But when it comes making a movie like Halloween today, I, I would say that we as movie consumers have changed in a sense that if if we, if there would not be Halloween, if John Carpenter would not have made Halloween 1978, and we would not have this timeline we have now, and today someone would come and make make Halloween today, I would say that we as a film consumers have changed so much that we would not appreciate that movie. If you would make Halloween today, it would be, if it were an independent film, nobody knew about this Halloween movie yet. It would be like the David Gordon Green movie with less interesting lighting, with more perfect cutting, more jump scares probably. I haven't seen the movie yet. Nobody has yet, except the people close to the production. But I think it's the fault of the industry in so many ways. There's so many departments that are involved with with these films in such a methodical, mechanical way that there is just no way to make a movie 
that John Carpenter did 40 years ago. Everything is more polished, which I don't like. Yeah, and everything needs to be more fast-paced, yeah, more yeah. violent, more gory. Yeah, people people check out their phones when they get bored. They want yeah. to avoid that. People don't have the concentration anymore. There's two ways to look at that too. I mean, Halloween. People still haven't had the pleasure of seeing movies like Saw 6. So people were expecting th- different things. Uh, nowadays, you kind of have to cater to these people who have seen Saw 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 and all the other gory sequels from Rob Zombie. So it's just kind of a MTV period, as they say, of horror movies. You have to make it absolutely ridiculous to sell the tickets. It's like an event, like a performance in itself. Yeah, I, I would even argue that we have already passed the MTV period of horror movies. And this is the point where horror movies has have to once again kind of refined and redefined themselves. To the to today's audience, and in a sense, I I get the feeling that where where the success could lie in today's market, and this is once again, you know, the cynical businessman in me talking, could could be kind of a meeting half halfway the old school horror films, and in here I'm picturing kind of a for example, films about ghosts and haunted places and uh, kind of uh, taking the basic vibe, vibe of those kind of movies and then upping the ante on jump scares and on-screen violence. And I, I, I would even argue, not without seeing, without seeing the upcoming Halloween, without seeing the David Gordon Green version, of Halloween, I could make the arg- uh, or I would make the wild guess that that is that could be the uh, uh, direction that the Halloween 2018 is going to take. It's gonna try to be this mishmash of the spirit of John Carpenter Halloween upping the ante on jump scares and on-screen violence. Yeah, it's it's going to try to meet the audience somewhere in the middle, clearly, to to piece these so-called millennials and also to please the so-called purist or older audiences. They have to make it a little bit gory to up the ante and everything that you just said. That's that's the best that we can get nowadays. For for me, uh, I I don't know if I would call myself a purist. I don't know what that means. I just see a movie like Halloween 1 and I enjoy it. And I see the points that makes it strong and that made it successful. And I want that to be emulated because it works. But of course, nowadays, uh, it could probably up the ante in certain points. But uh, I like the slow-paced movies. I enjoy them. The building up of the horror. Uh, We have a really... Nice term in Finnish for for this effect. It's called kylvä kauhua. That's what I want to see. Yeah, knowing your preferences, I I, I that that is the vibe I get you as a movie as a movie critic and as a 
as a watcher. Like I, I really heard that you were like hereditary a lot. No. When it came out. No. I, I, I heard that you really <laughs> loved that movie. No. Are you joking? I'm I'm completely joking here. Yeah, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see it by the way? Yeah, I uh, unfortunately I did go see it before I saw your review. Oh, yeah, I uh, thought it was kind of pre- pretentious and didn't think think it brought much new to the table. Yeah, I'm I'm not as harsh as you were on, on the film, but I I could see the points of criticism you made. Yeah, for for its benefit, for what it's worth, it had some moments that I liked more than 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 I I've liked a full horror movie in a long time. I did like it follows even with it, it it's its inherent flaws. It, it follows is one of the one of my favorite horror movies of 2010s. Have you seen it? Yeah, I I've seen it once. And I thought it was okay. It was really nice. I wasn't as blown away as everybody else seemed to be. I enjoyed that there was a logic behind, you know, the creature or, or how the main protagonist kind of interacted with the creature throughout the movie. I I thought that there there was it it played very nicely the fact that the main protagonist can see the creature and nobody else can. And it toyed around with that, uh, I think, quite masterfully throughout the movie. Yeah, the simplicity was interesting. And Halloween was one of their inspiration. Problems with the modern movies, I think we've gone through that pretty organically here. Too much over-editing, OCD cinematography, OCD lighting, as someone used to say, and over-choreography. For example, in movies like Matrix. Oh, but I, I, I wouldn't go as far as, you know, pinpointing Matrix here. Well, okay, it's a, yeah, it's a fantastical movie. Boring musical scores, bad casting, over-reliance on exposition, lack of visionary filmmakers. So, yeah, in the end, the movie made $70 million. Everybody was quite pleased, even though John Carpenter was still complaining that he didn't get his cut or enough. He made a deal that he gets $10,000 for directing, making the music, whatever else, plus, uh, I believe, a 10% profit of whatever the movie was making. And I hear, and I heard him say that he was quite happy when, like, a close to a million dollar check came to his address. So, yeah, but apparently he still had lots to complain and he wanted to direct Halloween H2O at one point. He was in discussions about this, but he wasn't too happy about the wage that he was going to get. So he simply said, uh, goodbye, I'm not interested. Please take care of this show by yourself. I'm out. Not sure what went wrong there, but that's that's apparently what happened. If you really want to look for some symbolism in, the, in this movie, uh, there's a film historian, J.P. Talot. He says that, quote, The pumpkin opening clearly announces that the film's primary concern will be with 
the way in which we see ourselves and others and the consequences that often attend our usual manner of perception. <sighs> did, did, did you go, you know, back to the film analysis once again? Yeah, I'm now at the actual symbolism part. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, like uh, you know, haven't I said to, said to you about, you know, the film symbolism and, and you know... <laughs> Not not going there. <laughs> Let's not even start. I have no clue what to respond to that. It's just, okay, great. Thanks, have a nice day. One more. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Halloween may encourage sadism and misogyny by audiences identifying with its villain. And some have suggested that the film is a social critique of the immorality of youth and teenagers, which we already talked about, with the victims being sexually promiscuous substance abusers, while the lone heroine is depicted as innocent and pure, hence her survival. But Carpenter has dismissed this bullshit, so we can move on. Thanks, Carpenter. Yeah, you know, I, I was kind of afraid. I, I was, ever since you announced that we are going to touch Halloween, I was dreading the dreading the point when we finally really hit this this mark <laughs> when it comes to the youth and when it comes to sexuality and open sex and the substance abuse in this case beer because goddamn if if this hasn't become you know the fucking stable where to go whenever you wanna analyze or critique horror movies and slasher movies in general. Yeah, it's boring, La- really. Yeah, like <sighs> this This is the go-to argument. How, how basically the victims are teenagers and the victims are participate in open sex and how, how there is drinking or in some cases, you know, pot smoking and how, how the whole film is kind of an attack against this, against the youth and against the open sexuality through its villains. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I, I can't but help being kind of a tired uh, of the argument. Granted, uh, I, I believe many copycats took this recipe literally and they started to use it in Friday the 13th or whatever your movie might be. They used this formula and then, of course, it was easy for films like Scream to argue that This is the recipe, and this is why they are getting killed. Yeah, yeah, the fucking scream. <clears throat> ah, yeah, you know that that that's that's the scream with which it with its I I wanna be deep analysis of horror movies is is something that you know is really hard for me to swallow coming from Wes Craven. Oh, you don't and you don't agree with Wes Craven's take on how this works? I I agree on how it works. And I can agree to a point with the argument of the reason being the conservative values and to a point the reason being a woman hating and misogyny. It's it's no secret that when it comes to Hollywood and when it comes to horror movies, even when it comes to slasher movies, there is some 
pretty, pretty damn troubling history in the attitudes hidden behind the movies. There, there is racism to be found. For example, the uh, early zombie movies, that, that's undeniable fact. And there are conservative values to be found in horror movies. There is woman hating to be found. And to a point, yeah, it, it really is there. But I, w- I would make the case that the argument has kind of been taken too far when it comes to analyzing horror movies. You can't be a complete hippie like John Carpenter was back in his day. If you watch any of the images of the dude back when he was making a Halloween. No, he's a capitalist hippie, I hear. <laughs> well, well, at least today he he's, he's a capitalist hippie, but hippie, all the, all the same. But yeah, the... There are clear cases, especially if you trace the horror movies more closer to back to their core and in the heart of slasher genre. I, I would make the case that when there are thousands of slasher movies from hundreds of directors and you have hippies, you have women, you have goddamn... Person, persons who in, hugely have enjoyed open sex and stuff like that, the argument that the conservative values are behind every single slasher movie, every single horror movie, I in my in my sense it does not hold hold water there. Like it, it it's it's to be seen even in ways how John Carpenter is approached. Like everybody can uh, agree that the thing is a masterpiece of horror cinema, and there's nothing wrong with the thing. But automatically, whenever we approach Halloween, we are supposed to see the old conservative values and the woman hating behind the camera. Yeah, I think it's just what people made up. People took the recipe and ran with it, and then people interpreted that that as having some kind of specific values against. Women. Yeah, I mean, the point of conservative values is kind of a trope of a trope. Like horror movies use certain tropes, have always uh, used, and kind of a seeing the conservative values and anti woman attitudes behind every movie is kind of a trope on itself today. And you know, to, actually, to really take up the challenge and really to spin this around, I would make the case that the point behind Halloween is not the conservative values and it's not hating women, it's not hating open sexuality, but it's about showing care or being afraid of Michael Myers. Like in the beginning of the film, when there's the scene of Michael's sister and her boyfriend. Uh, at that scene, uh, the boyfriend kind of uh, shows worry about Michael when he asks, what about Michael or where's Michael? And uh, like you pointed out, the boyfriend ends up having the quickest sexual intercourse in the movie history. Like, it, it takes 15 seconds for the dude to 
go upstairs and finish and start to get back up downstairs. And I, if somebody through years of porn consuming can vouch for the fact that you don't have sex in that short amount of time. I could also argue that they maybe didn't have sex. Maybe they were snuggling naked. Who knows? Uh, who and knows? This, then, who knows? then this guy maybe decided that, okay, it's time to go home because I have to read some English lectures. <laughs> who knows? Yeah, who knows? But the point still being the boyfriend who showed worry about Michael catching them up and ending up, so, ending up in a socially awkward situation walks away the house just barely seconds before, you know, he gets into Michael's crosshairs. The Michael Myers' sister, who was, who throws in the argument that he's somewhere and who cares? She's the one who ends up stabbed. And later on in the movie, after Michael has been constitutionalized and sent in the insane asylum and when Loomis and the nurse are approaching the premises, they, they, they notice that the patients are actually running free on the asylum premises. And the nurse, they, they both automatically sense that something is wrong and get nervous of the situation. The nurse survives the attack when Michael attacks the car and makes it out of the movie alive. Loomis, on the other hand, is... He, isn't even in the car at the moment, so survives the attack completely. Later on, once Michael reaches Haddonfield, there's the scene where the kids are bullying Tommy or with the boogeyman concept, and Tommy's obviously scared of the boogeyman, and this way He's kind of a scare. If Michael is, Michael Myers is boogeyman, we could say that Tommy is scared of Michael Myers indirectly. Tommy survives the movie. Basically, even even the bully who comes up to Michael Myers leaving the school premises, he survives the movie, showing uh, visible fear and concern when facing Michael. Laurie Strode, who at, is troubled by Michael during her first interactions with Michael. This, this is the being the part where Michael is only stalking his victims. But yeah, as the point that I was trying to make is that in the case of Halloween and in the case, case of how Michael Myers or how the victims of Michael Myers are kind of a chosen in the film, it ties more closely in showing or showing concern for socially awkward moments. Like, for example, being caught by your girlfriend's little brother when you are having trying to have sex with her, which would be really hard to explain and an awkward moment like the boyfriend does in the beginning of the film and survives the movie or then doing fear and concern towards creepy weirdos and possibly hostile people like Laurie and Tommy does in the film or how Loomis and the nurse does in their representative scenes and this way survives throughout, throughout the film. And I would, I would say, you know, those are positive life teachings. 
like in Halloween, where you survive the stabbings in life, you actually can survive quite a lot of situations if you react that way to socially awkward situations and possible creepy stalkers. Lori survives the movie by a mile. Like, Michael Myers can't stab her at all. He even misses two times point-blank stab. The, yeah. the first yeah, the first time being at the house when Michael manages to ambush her from behind and is inches away from her when he starts her uh, when he starts his attack and only manages slightly harm Lori's arm. And later on at the second house when Michael has teleported inside the house behind the couch and ambushes Lori again. And at that point, you know, Michael only manages to stab the sofa cushions. Yeah, the the, the first time we can kind of, we could understand that maybe Laurie was moving in a particular way that Michael just missed uh, her body or whatever he, he was aiming for. But on the second time, okay, it's getting a little bit on the unbelievable side, but to Myers' defense, it's really dark. So, okay. Well, I I really can't count that as a, any kind of a se- uh, defense seeing the jump that Michael has on Lori at those moments. But I, I can say, see there kind of at the point of Lori being afraid of Michael from the first interaction and because of this surviving the, through the movie. Whereas Lori's friends, Annie, is not afraid of Michael at any point. She throws in the speed kills argument and even makes fun of Michael at the bushes scene where Lori has seen Michael behind the bushes and Annie goes to check out the bushes and goes with the whole joke how... Michael has something to say to Lori and making fun of the whole situation. To their defense, nobody really sees him properly except Lori when she's sitting inside the glass. And when they are at the bush, Annie is going through her stuff in in her bag. And meanwhile, Lori is taking a look at this guy. Yeah, but you know, still there there is concern stated out by Lori. Yep, and yep. That, that is something where Annie does not really react to that concern. And even, even more than that, there is the previous speed kills scene. And for all of this not showing fear and not showing concern, Annie ends up strangled in the car. Linda, who at the first noticeable interaction with Michael, okay to her defense, thinks that Michael is his boyfriend, since Michael is wearing wearing the sheet and, you know, Bob's glasses, does not show immediate fear and concern. But, you know, shows her tits and makes fun of the situation. She ends up strangled with the phone cord. Bob, okay, does not get as much of a situation to show con- concern, but still I would make the argument that even Bob does not show concern against Michael 
at the first moment when he comes to contact with Michael and that he ends up stabbed to death. To come back to your sexual intercourse, intercourse talk, the first time is a milestone itself for the shortness of it. But I believe that Linda and Bob having their erotic moment is even shorter than the first one. So two milestones in one movie. Yeah. And you said about the Smith scroll. Yeah, Marion Chambers was in the car. Funnily enough, in the script, they were both inside the car when Michael jumps on top of the car. And uh, they have uh, lines like this. Something fell on the roof, says Marion. And then Loomis goes, something jumped on the roof. Well, I'm glad they removed that. And uh, when Loomis goes out of the car, he meets a wandering patient. And this patient is the one that is talking something about uh, the evil being gone. It's all right now. He's gone. The evil is gone. So it was this patient's line. But yeah, a lot of things were twisted around. Yeah, I I could see actually that version of the script working quite nicely. Yeah. Not, not, not so much them commenting on Michael jumping on top of the car, but the, the moment with the patient and the patient making the remark that the evil is gone. Yeah, and Michael actually grabs the wiper in the car at one moment. I'm not sure what was the point, but he grabs the wiper anyway. Maybe the most ridiculous thing that I found in the script is that once Laurie stabs Michael with the coat hanger, he, he goes to the opening of the door and says to herself something like, well, kiddo, some Halloween. That would have changed the mood entirely. Would be interesting to know if they shot some of these things. Oh, there's even one one more that is even more kind of out of place. When Laurie is in the class and the uh, teacher is talking, Laurie is doodling something to her notebook writing or drawing something into her notebook, she writes the words, uh, Laurie Strode is lonely. Like to make it goddamn obvious. We know that already, that she's probably lonely. Well, I, I, I wouldn't, you know, jump into any clon- conclusions si- simply by what we see visually. Yeah, okay, but it's suggested that she, she is, uh, let's say, sexually lonely. Right, or it's uh, it's too much of a symbolism stuff for you. Uh, it's not, it's not too too much, but yet the film kind of makes a point of it when there is the whole setting up the or going out to the dance. But I don't remember what was the off-screen character's name. Mm, you mean Ben Tramer? Yeah, Ben Tramer. Yeah. Rest in peace. I was thinking that it would be a fun idea to, in Halloween 2018 to get Ben Tramer back now that he's not dead because there's no Halloween 2. So. But uh, I think they're not going to do that. Yeah, hard, hard to say. Do you have any favorite quotes in this movie? The monologue that Lomis gives to the, mm. to the sheriff when describing, my, describing Michael, the whole... There was nothing in his eyes. He was just staring at the wall, past the wall, to this night. Yeah, inhumanly patient. 
Yeah. It's all great. And it's, it would be the first choices that I would choose. If I would choose something else to be kind of uh, different. I like uh, how Loomis is reacting in the TV version in a couple of scenes. For example, I've spent four hours a day, four hours a day with this boy. Or when he gets really angry at Dr. Wynn when they walk out of the mental asylum or Smith's Grove. He wasn't happy about the precautions that were taken. And he's shouting, I told everybody! <laughs> it's a really strong acting. Is it established in the TV version that it was the sanitarium staff that taught Michael how to drive? Like, like no. is, is there a throwaway line concerning that where, you know, the head of the in sanitarium would have told Loomis that they thought Michael should drive because he was actually such a peaceful and good patient. <laughs> no, there was nothing mentioned about the driving. It's just one, okay. of, one of those things that are a mystery, a flavor of the supernatural. Well, I guess there's nothing so supernatural. Maybe he could learn it, but yeah, okay. Maybe uh, there was a suggestion that maybe he learned it when Michael Myers was driving with Dr. Sam Loomis to different hearings in different places, perhaps. Maybe he took note of how Sam Loomis was driving the car. <laughs> yeah, who, who knows? My little brother would probably kill me if I wouldn't mention this quote, so I'd rather go out with Ben Tramer. Ben Tramer? I knew it! So you do think about things like that, huh, Laurie? Uh, <laughs> and, and when I was probably around 13, 14, I think we watched Halloween with, with my brother. We watched the movie and then this line, He's cute! And we started to use it that night. They couldn't go to sleep because I was using it. So how is it? How do you feel? Would you recommend Halloween? Yes. It's one of my favorite movies, and it's one of the best, if not the best, horror movie of all time. Although, I have a really soft spot for Halloween too. It's not perfect, and it's taking a different path than stylistically than Halloween 1. But there are certain moments that are absolutely, incredibly executed. And, but we, we will get to that. I would recommend Halloween it's not just a horror movie. It's not really even a slasher movie. I would not count it as a slasher movie. Because what do you think as a slasher movie is blood, guts and gore. Heads being chopped off. Jason putting arrows through people's throats. But Halloween, it's more like an art film for me. It's, it's a really good movie. It's, I would recommend it for everyone that watches movies. Good movies. Yes. I would recommend it. Yeah, I too would recommend Halloween. It's extremely well done. It is masterfully shot. And, you know, it's a, it's, it's kind of a, tes a testament of its time. So, yeah, I, I would also recommend Halloween. Yeah, it's a landmark movie. It, it truly is. And in some instances, it may may not be a good thing, but actually this is a movie that I would recommend, even if it 
would not have all of the baggage of titled the best horror movie ever or the one that changed everything. And so please watch it. Henrik, what is our next movie? Well, with, with seeing how the road we have already taken, I, I think that, you know, it's there is no kind of a mystery or question or what movie we are going to tackle next. If if someone could not pierce it together from this episode and, you know, all, all the talking we had about Halloween and, and the franchise, you know, if, if it's still a question mark to someone, the next movie we are going to go through in our next episode is... Snow White. Is Sylvester Stallone's historical comedy, Stop or Mom Will Shoot. Exactly. Roll credits yes. and... See you next week. No, Halloween too. Halloween too. Oh, well, fuck me then, you know. <laughs> fine, fine, let's go with Halloween too. Be a spoiler, spoiler. <laughs> I haven't really asked you recently what you would like to have in the cast. Because in the beginning you said that you are now, uh, you didn't have maybe suggestions at the time. Would be nice to traverse through some films that I know you like and movies that I instantly connect with you. Uh, those would be Hellraiser and Shiri. <laughs> I, I I was afraid that you are going to say uh, weird Belgian born. <laughs> I I I'm g- glad that that was not the one one you dropped. <laughs> I seriously think that this is the last episode or last time I'm going to drink drink Budweiser because it has totally messed up my brain during this episode. So sorry for anything that didn't come out quite right. What do they drink in Halloween too? I don't want to know. Probably nothing. I remember nothing. Yeah. Or in the worst case, it's more Budweiser. Oh dear. Oh God. I mean, we are talking about American slasher films here. There are not too many beer brands that they use. Yeah. All right. My brain is empty. There's, of course, like billions of things you could say about this movie, but we don't have time for everything. And not every single detail is so interesting. And I think we've covered pretty much all the things that are worth talking about. So thank you very much for the longest episode so far. And see you next time. Yeah, see you on the cutting room floor.